grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let me push my buttons here. Just thinking of another month or so, I'll have somebody else pushing my buttons for me. That's right. I'll have a producer in-house doing this stuff for me. Anyway, welcome. I'm excited to be here. I hope you are, too. Hope everybody had a great weekend. I know we had a great read yesterday for uh, incident, the Mojave incident. Somebody I'll remember what I'm doing. Uh, sorry, chocolate again. It's always me and chocolate, right? The good news is I'll be done with the chocolate in a couple days, so I won't be chocolate anymore. But anyway, I'm a chocolate fiend. I don't like to tell people that. My name is Charlotte. I'll be your host for the next hour. And boy, do we have a great show. You know, when I think of the Jazz Age and books, the first thing that comes to mind is The Great Gatsby. And uh, it was a real cool period in that, you know, lots of flapper music, lots of people dancing around and stuff. And when I've done old hotels, especially, I'm, I'm going to mention one, the Brookdale Lodge. Um, that was, you know, that one in the Moss Beach Distillery. That was back during Prohibition and all that time. And when I walked into the uh, Brookdale Lodge, it was interesting because, you know, that scene in um, The Shining when he walks into the ballroom and they're all standing there with their drinks. When I walked to the door of the Brookdale Lodge, that's the first vision I, I got. There were like tons of people standing in there, men, you know, dressed in their dressed in their suits and whatnot gangsters okay and they were all lifting drinks inviting me in so it's interesting so when i came across this gentleman's book i was absolutely fascinated with it i love reading this kind of stuff and it's actually a true story all right anyway i am the owner of the california haunts paranormal investigation team we're based out of sacramento california 35 strong we have people in almost every county to help you out all free of charge help you with your paranormal stuff and we also have people in Oregon, Washington, Nevada, and Hawaii. And now that that's out of the way, if you're watching on YouTube, please uh, subscribe. If you look down at the bottom right-hand corner, at least I think it's still there, there's a ghost with a magnifying glass and a Sherlock Holmes hat on. That's our mascot. And just click on that. You can subscribe. We've got 200, almost 250 videos on there of varying topics for you to peruse and for your pleasure. So please do check that out and subscribe because we're looking for subscribers. If you're listening to the podcast, thank you very much. I'm glad you're listening. Please be sure to share the share the podcast with others. It's been great. Anyway, welcome, and let's get the show on the road. I'm going to bring in Mr. James Stewart. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. How yeah, are you? Good. good. How are you? Good. If you heard my intro, it was not that James Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> station, you know. Yeah, I get that. I think I've actually got the Ouija board out or whatever, you know. Yeah. Talking with the man. So tell me about you, sir. Uh, me? Uh, I guess what is, you know, I always wanted to be a writer. It was always what I was best at when I was young. And I grew up in a little town in Louisiana uh, near Baton Rouge. And uh, after I attended uh, LSU, and graduated from there, I uh, went into the Navy and spent 25 years on active duty there. Uh, long story. <laughs> but anyway, I kind of went all over the place and uh, 
uh, was stationed overseas a few times, went on a lot of deployments, ended up in command of a ship at the end. Uh, so, and then I retired and that was in 2005, I guess. And I was still working some, but uh, what I really wanted to do was, was write a book because I had always wanted to do that and put it out of the way. So I actually started by going back to school. I went to uh, uh, back to college and got a degree in English first and then went into an MFA program for creative uh -huh. writing. So at the uh, UCR uh, program. And that's where this book came from. It was my uh, thesis topic there in that uh, program, so. Interesting. And what type of research did you have to do to write this book? Oh, research was massive. It took me years. Uh, that's not the only reason it took years, but uh, that was a big part of it. Um, well, you know, the thing about it is, is when you when you want to write about an old event and you want to be as truthful as possible, I, I'm not a fan of uh, fiction and nonfiction, if you know mm -hmm. what I mean. And there's a lot of that in nonfiction. And uh, if you want to be truthful and you're writing about something, a crime that's basically 100 years old mm -hmm. and wasn't about a famous person, she was not known at all when this happened to speak of, uh, then you have to uh, do a lot of research. And fortunately, in this case, uh, when I started looking around for cases, I, I wanted to do something in San Diego where I was living because I, I knew the research would be a lot. And so... Uh, I wanted to be an old murder mystery and I wanted it to be from the twenties even because uh, that's my favorite period. So, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, crime stories and that sort of thing. So, right. so one of the, a couple of the criteria I had was that it had to have been covered widely in its day by the papers, since that's really, you know, the only kind of news coverage that's there was research. In, yeah, right there, in 1923. Yeah. So that's a big part of it, you know, and there were hundreds of newspaper articles about this case, fortunately. It actually was covered across the country in the first half of 1923. And the other part of it was, is if the case didn't go to trial, then you wouldn't have those court documents and trial transcripts, which right. is another huge chunk. So if you take the newspaper articles and the trial transcripts and some other things, um, you know, that's about 80% of you know, what you can use to put the story together. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also found a lot of other historical documents and stuff uh, that were germane. Managed to talk to a few people who knew some of the people, uh, you know, much later in life, a long, long time ago. One woman was 98 years old. Wow. <laughs> I tracked her down and she was a cousin of one of the principals. So, you know, I managed to, to get hold of some people as well. Um, mm -hmm. That's the hard part about the, these old cases. Um, you know what I find interesting looking at old newspapers because being being a journalist and working for newspapers is the difference in writing in, in writing style. Yeah, you go back and look, <laughs> even like you know, like we, the Gold Country out here, you know, the eighteen hundreds and all that. When you start reading Mark Twain stuff, or you start reading, you know, some of these old newspapers, and it's just completely different from from the way journalists write today. It really is, and especially at that particular time, it was in the heyday of yellow journalism. So, you know, uh, tabloid. I mean, every, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, yep. You know, kind of idea. Big screaming headlines of murder and mayhem on every paper, uh, pretty much. Uh, especially the big city newspapers, New York, Chicago, and L.A. 
the Hearst newspapers. Oh yeah, uh, I was gonna say the Hearst. Newspapers. Yeah, he was real. Back then, he was my idol in journalism school, and my my, my journalism teacher about had a stroke because <laughs> what I remember with him was the story about uh, San Francisco Bay when he wanted to see how long it would take the Coast Guard to respond. So he had somebody from the paper jump in the water. Oh wow! Yeah, he was. Then, then, then they got the Coast Guard to come out, so he was timing it. That was his yellow journalism. It was crazy. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's part of your problem with research on an old case is, is that you have to really compare all the articles you could find and try to separate fact from fiction. Everything was sensationalized, and it actually affected this case to a large degree. That became one of the stories was the newspaper coverage. Uh, other themes like that that were part of the story that helped shape the story were like prohibition, the corruption. And that played a big part in this case. Um, and Hollywood, old Hollywood, silent, silent Hollywood, which right. and the glamour associated with that. And that's related to this case. And then the biggest theme overall would be the lack of choices that women had at that time. And that's actually directly related to the plot of the book. Um, and what happened to, uh, the protagonist. Well, for people that haven't read the book, you give them a summary that we can get to more meat and potatoes on it. Yeah, it's it's a jazz age murder mystery. When somebody asked me for my elevator pitch, there it is. Jazz age murder mystery uh, set in San Diego and Los Angeles. Uh, a lot of the investigation took place there. Uh, in 1923, there was a young woman named Fritzy Mann, and she was an immigrant uh, Jewish woman. Uh, and uh, her family had integrated here, immigrated here in 1910, like mm -hmm. a lot of other people from Eastern Europe came over here. And uh, they ended up in San Diego. Um, and she was an interpretive dancer. It's kind of a lost art now. I didn't really, I'd heard that term, but I didn't really know what it was. But the whole idea behind it was, is you did these, you know, traditional uh, you know, Asian or Middle Eastern kind of legends and you kind of physically translate them. You know, mm -hmm. so it was a real free form kind of uh, art dancing, I guess, your modern dance. It was kind of the precursor to modern dance in, right. in some ways. So uh, and anyway, uh, she spent most of the last uh, she spent two months shortly before she died in the L.A. area. Mm -hmm. And one of the first big mysteries was what was she doing up there? And that gets solved later on. But she left home one night in January uh, 14th, 1923. And she was acting very strangely. She told her mom she was going to meet this guy who was going to take her to this house party in Del Mar. And she wouldn't be more specific than that. Wouldn't tell him the guy's name. He was coming down from L.A. And I'll call you tomorrow. Well, she didn't. Uh, the next day, her body was found on Torrey Pines Beach. Wow! Uh, back then, a pretty a pretty lonely beach. It's not now, but back then it was. And uh, and so, that, I mean, that's the setup to the story right there. Right, right. And you know, it was a baffling crime scene. And uh, I can go into that as much as you'd like. Oh yeah, yeah. I was just thinking about the police back then. Yeah, I was a crime reporter for five years. Yeah. So, you know, when, when you look back, even on that, like, like we talk about the newspapers, it wasn't only the newspapers that were inferior. And I hate to say it. The police are smart. Even back oh. then, the police were smart. But they didn't have the tools that they have today to, to really, you know, 
look look into these murders to, to get them solved. So how did that happen? I mean, they found the body, and then what happened? Yeah, well, it was, uh, you know, by the standards of today, it was ineptly handled, handled mm -hmm. at the, uh, you know, the crime scene on the beach. You know, they were, by time, no detectives showed up, but uh, the coroner and a deputy sheriff and a couple of motorcycle cops showed up. But they also had a whole bunch of looky-loos gathering and wandering around the beach and, you know, <laughs> mucking up the crime scene. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, the procedures weren't the same then. They didn't document the crime scene. No photographs were taken. And assumed they, they initially assumed that she had drowned. But the crime scene was very baffling. Uh, at the bottom of the embankment uh, leading down from the, the highway there on the beach, they found a, her dress that she had been wearing, a real flapper's party dress, you know, uh, copper beads on a, a brown dress, party dress. It was found stretched out into the sand. Then a few hundred feet away, her body was embedded in the sand. Wow. Uh, and she was dressed only in a pink silk teddy, stockings, and French pumps. Wow. And so that, that's unusual for a, a drowning victim. Oh, yeah. And, and, uh, and then up the beach, about 500 yards, as if tossed out of a, of a car, what they called machines back then. That's how they referred to them as machines most of the time. Um, were a vanity case and a handbag that she had left home with. And, uh, and inside of there were a bunch of cards inside of the vanity case. And one of them was a handwritten card that said, I am Fritzy Mann. And so that was their first clue to her identity. At first, nobody knew it, knew right. who she was. But uh, they they kind of figured pretty quick that it wasn't accidental because it's so cold, you know, in the water there in January. And that was a, a cool, blustery uh, night. It had gotten down into the 40s, which very cold for here. And the water is cold even in the summer here. So, you know, they figured out pretty quickly she didn't strip, you know, her dress off and then run out into the surf for a mm -hmm. midnight swim, you know. Mm -hmm. But could it have been suicide? Could it have been uh, murder? They were very uncertain. And it took many days before they really, you know, kind of decided officially this is what we're going to pursue. So um, how did they figure out that she, I mean, had she been str strangled or how did that work? I mean, how did they figure out? Well, the autopsy was that evening. Back then, another thing, procedures <laughs> were different then. You know, the coroner dropped her body off at uh, a funeral parlor. Mm -hmm. And he had this agreement with the funeral homes where that's where we'll do autopsies when required. And I'll I'll deliver a, a fair share of, of, you know, the bodies that I collect to to each funeral parlor. It was, it was kind of those one of those weird asides I learned about when I was doing the research. But anyway, uh, the coroner, who was not a, a medical person, uh, he had been like a newspaper man, <laughs> and then uh, he'd been elected as coroner back then. It wasn't required. It wasn't like the, the medical examiner system. Mm -hmm. But he had a Harvard-trained doctor who did his autopsies, the autopsy surgeon. So he showed up at the funeral home, and when he found her body there, it would hit. they had already started embalming her body just a couple of hours after... Yeah, and and uh, there's a lot of things wrong with that, but from a yeah. 
you know, from a religious perspective for, for, for Jewish people is one. And, mm -hmm. uh, they didn't ask anybody, they just did it. And, uh, a, by the time he got there, most of her blood had been drained from her body. So, you know, later on, they asked the guy said, uh, you know, did this give you problems with <laughs> determining cause of death? And he said, well, it handicaps a man. So, you know, I mean, it was an inept autopsy, but they determined two major things. One, that she had, in fact, drowned. And two, that she was four months pregnant. And wow, that's, the, okay. that's the key piece of information. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. So back then, you know, especially back then, um, a single woman, 20 years old, um, you know, that wasn't supposed to happen. No. And obviously... There was no effective birth control. It was illegal anyway. Abortion mm -hmm. was illegal. And, you know, there was also the matter of, you know, if the guy won't marry you, there wasn't a whole lot she could do about it. And that's what right. happened in this case. And, uh, yeah, her really, her only option was to like run off and have the kids somewhere, be ostracized from her family and, and her friends and lose her career and everything. It was just awful. The, the choices that she faced and, uh, and that led directly to her death. So, um, you know, so that, you know, that's what they found out from the autopsy. They started doing an investigation. They quickly developed two suspects who might have had a hand in her death. They finally decided that the only way she got to that beach that night was somebody dropped her off because there was no car there. She didn't drive, didn't own a car. So somebody took her there. So clearly somebody else knew what happened to her. So from that perspective, they're treating it as suspicious. And uh, uh, they, they quickly developed two uh, suspects. One was a doctor at the Army Hospital, or VA Hospital uh, near San Diego that she had dated off and on since the last year, including around the time she got pregnant, although they had broken up by then. Mm -hmm. and a kind of a, a of an actor um, who was just in a small fledgling film company. and But he was a tall, good-looking guy, and he was a real, uh, you know, ladies' man. You know, um, you know, I don't want to use derogatory terms, but uh, right. he, uh, you know, something that people may take as derogatory. The derogatoriness is directed toward him. He was, uh, he had a fondness for young women and uh, he was about 37 years old and she was 20. And that was pretty much par for the course for him. Right. Um, so anyway, he was a player and uh, at a time when there is no birth control. And so you can imagine, you know, so the, the cops started investigating those two guys and then there were rapid developments in the case from there. And, a few days later, they did an inquest, uh, the coroner's inquest, with testimony, and uh, they decided that uh, it was homicide. Huh. So it was still wishy-washy, and sure. it became a big issue at trial later on. You know, did she kill herself, which she had, you know, a pregnant woman in that situation with nowhere else to go? It was not an uncommon thing. And it was also not uncommon then so much for murders to be committed for that reason. 
So he made a good motive for either one uh, from that perspective. So, so I mean, thinking about this, she either had to be strangled before she was, in, you know, if it was somebody that did it, or or she was knocked out and dumped in that water, or somebody had to get in the water with her to to, to drown her. Uh, yeah, um, you know, there was a lot of speculation on that, and they never proved it one way or the other. She did have a bruise over one eye, but mm -hmm. it it probably would not have even knocked her out. It might ha may have, but it was not a severe injury. Uh, they did not find any defensive wounds on her. Most of the marks on her body were probably incident to, uh, you know, uh, being drugged across the sand and her body placed there, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but a few days into the case, they discovered, or at least according to the prosecution, uh, she had gone that night and she went to a place called the Blue Sea Cottage. It was a little resort cottage, a uh, set of cottages on the beach in near La Jolla, uh, mm -hmm. California, and which was about eight miles from where her body was found. And they determined that she had shown up there with a guy uh, who had signed in under an assumed name, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, L.A. Oh, and so the next big mystery became who was Mr. Johnson? And was it one of these guys? Was it somebody else? And, you know, so on and so forth. So uh, that's really the big mystery is what happened to her there? Mm -hmm. And did it happen there? Did it happen on the beach and whatnot? And, you know, I, I came to conclusions on all of that at the, at the end of the book. But uh, officially, the case remains unsolved. The guy who was taken to trial um, was acquitted finally after two trials. So. Wow. That's, yeah. that's crazy. I mean, they, they could have slipped or something at the party. Mm -hmm. You know, anything could happen. It's just, that was, yeah. It's just too bad that things were primitive back then. You know what I mean? Because yeah. nowadays they, 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 they would have known that. Nowadays they would have known what to look for for strangulation and right. all that, you know? So, I mean, you can't fault them because that's, that, that's how it was then. But it's, still, you feel yeah, right. her because there's, there's no closure. Yeah, and uh, her her family didn't have closure, um, mm -hmm. you know, at the time, her remaining family. And, um, you know, what? another thing, they probably would have been able to, the autopsy surgeon would have been able to tell even then if it was strangulation, you know. Uh, however, he did not take samples of blood or tissues or anything like that for analysis. So they didn't do any analysis on that to find out if she had, you know, taking something. The, when the coroner first saw her on the beach, there was this foaming at the mouth, which is common in, amongst drowning victims. Mm -hmm. But uh, he thought it looked like something that could have been from uh, uh, a poison like um, cyanide, specifically, he mentioned. Okay. But he, he, you know, the, he did, really didn't have anything to base that on. And uh, that also was a, a big thing of speculation during the trials between the the defense in the prosecution. The defense, of course, tried to show that it was suicide. The prosecution tried to show that it was murder and it was a real close battle the whole way through. So how um how low was this beach from the road? Because I know a lot of those beaches on the highlands, like in San Francisco, for instance, Moss, Moss Beach Distillery. We want to talk mm -hmm. about that era as well and what happened there with her fault. With her, well, there's two stories with that where 
her lover pushed her off the cliff and then she was crossing the road and somebody ran her over, you know? Yeah. But either way, her body ended up somewhere on the beach. Right. It was uh, it, from the highway. There was a straight stretch of paved highway. You know, a lot, most roads weren't even paved back then, mm -hmm. uh, but this stretch of highway was paved. Uh, they called it the coast highway. Okay. And it runs along the beach and it still does. Uh, the road's different now. It's bigger and heavily trafficked, but at the time it was just a, a two-lane highway that uh, they ran there. And then there was a rocky embankment. And because with the tide there, it's actually a, an estuary, a saltwater estuary. Okay. Um, back then called the, uh, um, oh, geez, I'm going to forget the name. It's now called the Los Pinasquitos. Um may not be pronouncing that correctly, but uh, okay. uh, lagoon. But there is, uh, back then they called it uh, Mount, I'm sorry, uh, not Soledad. Uh, I'll think of the name here in a minute. doesn't really matter. Um, but with the high tide, the, the, the highway would have been flooded if it was, you know, at like uh, anywhere near sea level. So it was elevated on a bed of rock. And uh, it was even higher back then than it is now. Now it's, I don't know. 15 feet maybe above the beach okay. level, something well, like that. Bad. I'm just that's guessing. It's not like it's a big cliff. No, it's not a cliff. But and still, they had to maneuver some, you know, somebody or her in, in, in the middle of the night at some point had to maneuver down this the, the, this ledge. Yes, right. Yeah, it, it, there was actually a path where there, there was one spot there, kind of a makeshift parking area mm -hmm. uh, near a bridge on the highway close to where her body was found. And there, you know, it had been used all the time for people going down there to swim and whatnot. And so there was a path to, to get the body down there. It would not have been easy right. at night. And uh, and there were some other areas of the embankment that were much steeper uh, further up, uh, like where her vanity and handbag were found it was pretty steep at that point. In fact, you probably could have fallen off down there, but that's not where she was found. So it no. was... It was it was found in the only spot where you could actually easily access the beach. Okay. So, you know, you know, if you were if you were trying to dispose of a body, which is what I believed happened here, right. uh, that's where you would stop because there was nowhere else within miles really where you could stop. So, and then with the vanity and everything, uh, yeah. you could see where they'd go to a higher spot to throw it in the ocean with hopes that it would float out to sea yeah right the high tide would come in right. but they didn't do a very good job because they were they were found so so what did the newspaper think happened because i know the I know newspaper reporters are, are nosy as hell so yeah <laughs> <laughs> they they uh you know they pretty closely followed what the cops and the coroner were saying the police chief uh who did uh probably a majority of the investigation he had some detectives but he did most of the, the main interviews and all that sort of thing. So he personally handled the case. Um, but they, you know, back then it was different with newspaper reporters. Back then there wasn't the animosity that you would <laughs> typically find, you know, uh, you know, between the cops and the, and the newspapers. Right. And they actually, you know, it was kind of a mutual thing. They would actually bring reporters with them to the crime scenes. In fact, in this case, when they discovered the Blue Sea Cottage, they had one of the biggest uh, uh, reporters in the city with them who actually searched the cabin with them. Uh, you know, it was not an uncommon kind of thing back then. You know, now it would 
get the case thrown <laughs> thrown right, out right, in right. court, you know. Right. But uh, and then they would write. Uh, for the most part, they would write. You know, give good press to the cops. Uh, you know, for the most part. But it actually got caught up in a big political situation that was going on a mayoral election at the time of this case, and the cops gave one particular newspaper favoritism over the others and uh, they were owned by big in fact famous uh, right. uh, men um they owned lots of newspapers and lots of the city and whose names are all over spreckles and uh, scripts you know if you've been to san diego you'll hear both of those names a lot um but uh, they went with the the, the san diego sun sun which was uh, now defunct and they kind of gave some favoritism to them a lot of the times uh, reporters from the Sun got to ride along, and they kind of, kind of gave the cold shoulder to the other ones because those newspapers, the Union and the Tribune, which are now combined into one, uh, were both anti uh, the you know the the incumbent mayor. They were backing a different uh, thing. So the chief of police was with the mayor, and you know, and so the other papers were giving him a hard time. Uh, the so it, there was a lot of animosity, especially toward the end of the case when the, the mayor's race heated up. Now, in looking at all the research that you did, what stood out to you? You know, what, 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 what was glaring to you? You mean as, as far as the outcome or? Yeah, or as far as what might have happened to her? What, what stood out mostly to you? Uh, what stood out to me was is that her body was definitely placed there. Okay. okay. And she was killed or died at the Blue Sea Cottage. Um, now, there was a lot of controversy about that at the time. Um, there's no question in my mind that's what happened. And there's no question in my mind who it was. Mm -hmm. um, so I, and unless you want me to, I probably won't spoil the mystery there. But one of the two main suspects was taken to trial. And okay. uh, um there's no question in my mind it was him. Uh, the only real question is, is did he purposely murder her or did she die? She died during a procedure that oh, okay. was happening there. Okay. okay. I got it. I got it. So, you know, if you want me to go into it, I will. It's, it's all right. But yeah, uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Because I, yeah. I, I just ordered the book yesterday. So I'm looking forward to reading it anyway. It okay. Matter. All right. It doesn't matter if I spoil it. Okay. Uh, they, uh, both of the the doctor and the actor looked guilty at first. There was like a string of circumstantial evidence. They both had motive, potentially, as the father of the child. And it was definitely one of those two guys. Um, and, uh, you know, like the actor, they they he didn't turn himself in, even though his name was all over the paper. So he looked suspicious and it looked like he was getting ready to flee in his fancy car uh was had blood spots in it and smashed gauges on the on the dash um it turns out those were red herrings and uh, uh they dismissed him uh, as a suspect you know like five or six days after the case broke and the doctor however they found out that he had sent or he, i don't know if he had sent her but uh, Fritzy had gone to L.A. In, in November, two months before she died. And supposedly she was up there filling dancing engagements, which she was to some extent. But she was also, 
this doctor was trying to arrange an abortion for her in LA. And uh, he tried for a couple of months and they had a big falling out and she thought that he was blowing it off. And uh, anyway, she threatened him 12 days before she died. Wow. And she ended up back in San Diego, uh, you know, just five days after that threat, a week before she died. And so this didn't come out until a couple of days after the case broke that she had left her personal correspondence along with some other possessions at a friend's house in Long Beach. So they discovered that uh, correspondence and it made it clear who it was. And uh, even though he didn't really use his name in it, it was clear who it was and what they were up to. Although they wrote in euphemisms because it was illegal. And not only was it illegal, uh, he would have lost his medical license Mm -hmm. for sure for doing this. And uh, he ended up getting kicked out of the public health service uh, over this whole affair. So, uh, so uh, no question in my mind that it was the doctor. You had to put together a lot of little pieces, you know, the defense, the, the, he hired a, a uh, high-priced defense attorney, one of the best-known defense attorneys in Southern California at the time. He's not known now, but um, and a whole team of private investigators to go talk to witnesses and intimidate witnesses. And a lot of shaky stuff happened during the trial on both sides, actually. Um, and uh, But he, he managed to create a reasonable doubt. And, and in the end, I agreed with the acquittal just from our, you know, the, uh, they could not prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. They couldn't even say with certainty, here's uh-huh. what happened to her. So, you know, um, it was amazing that the prosecutor got as far as he did to tell you the truth, but he had it right. He had the scenario right or very close to right. And, uh, but the guy got away with it and he got to go on with his life while Fritzy was dead. So, was the doctor married? He was not. Uh, he did get married later. Um, and one of the kind of twists of the book is the last part of the book is called An American Tragedy. And I don't know if you've ever read the book by Theodore Dreiser. It was mm-hmm. actually written, it was being written at the time this case was happening. Um, it's called An American Tragedy. It was well bestseller back at the time, kind of a classic now. Um, It turns out that the doctor had more motive than just the fact of getting out of this sticky situation with a woman he didn't want to marry, right? Mm -hmm. He was courting a a rich uh, widow (laughs) at the time. And that's, it very closely parallels the plot of American tragedy. And Dreiser actually was very fascinated by this. He called it a peculiarly American crime and had to do with the fact that young people had it beaten into them that they needed to gain status. Right. And so if you weren't born with status, you had to marry into it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this guy was trying to do. And that's what happened in an American tragedy. And, you know, unfortunately, in both cases, they had gotten a young, innocent woman pregnant. Mm -hmm while they were trying to marry this rich woman. Uh, this who in the also case, reminds me of it. I can't remember the name of the movie. 
what is this is the sun also it's not the sun also rises it's something with the sun elizabeth taylor's in it oh yeah um you know which one i'm talking about yeah but i can't remember the name of it he works in the shoe factory right he falls he falls for the for for the one gal in the shoe factory right he starts hanging out with 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 elizabeth taylor and all her buddies yeah he decides he doesn't want anything to do with the girl in the shoe factory she's pregnant so he takes her on a boat or a canoe that's based directly on american tragedy yeah and he knocks her down yeah he knocks her in the water that's it yeah yep that so yeah, I had actually remembered here and I couldn't remember what movie it was. Yeah. But there was a movie that right. at least one movie based on it. Yeah. It was a very common scenario back then. Right. Uh, you know, more so than now. Right. Right. So, yeah. so, you know, how long did the investigation take before it went to trial? It uh investigation started uh, 15th of January and the trial started uh, about the 26th of March. So, you know, that was fat. nine, nine weeks, 10 weeks, nine, 10 weeks. That was and, and the trial was, was a major sensation across the country actually. Um, and, uh, which is why I managed to be able to write about it <laughs> for one reason, you know, cause there was, a, I had a newspaper articles from all over the place. Right. And including the major newspapers, especially in LA and San Francisco. So, uh, so yeah. And then the the first jury was hung and the doctor thought he was going to get off with it, but immediately the prosecutor announced that he was taking it to trial again. And then it went to trial uh, around the same time, like toward the end of June. Uh, So, you know, just a few months later, it went to the second trial. It ended in like mid mid to late July, and that's when he was acquitted. So was he able to get his medical license and everything taken care of afterwards, or, or was he out of a job? He did. He was out of a job as far as the public health service, which right. you know he had gone into directly from serving in World War One in the army as an army doctor, and uh, he went to the public health service, which doesn't really exist anymore. But back then, it was a big deal. And the hospital was uh, near San Diego was one of uh, of a number of hospitals that were designated for tuberculosis victims, uh, in this case, veterans, the VA hospitals. There were, you know, just thousands and thousands of veterans coming back with with TB, uh, as they called consumption back then. Right. And, and that's another factor that plays into this whole story. Uh, you know, most people these days don't realize what that was like, you know, at the time. And this went on for decades uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century until they finally, you know, developed some effective meds, you know, like in the 40s, 30s or 40s. And so if you look back, you know, a lot of famous people died from tuberculosis and a number of them associated with this case died from TB as well. Thinking about, like you say, in American Tragedy in that movie, that other movie, was he already seeing her before he got into the higher circles, or was he already in the higher circles and he was just kind of slumming around with her? Well, in, it's hard to say. Uh, he met this rich widow around the same time he met Fritzy, which was the previous spring. I, I couldn't exactly nail it down. There was uh, different... Uh, sources said different things, but 
you know, it was in the spring of 1922 when he met both of them separately. Uh, she moved in high circles. He wanted to be part of those circles and he did move in those circles. But for whatever reason, he uh, he met Fritzy probably at one of her dancing engagements. Uh, she had some pretty large engagements in 1922 and a number of smaller engagements around town. Um, and uh, not sure exactly how they met, but she clearly fell in love with him, but him not so much. And uh, they broke up uh, not long before she discovered she was pregnant, which yeah. was in October so um, of that year. So they had already broken up by then, but uh, they had a... <clears throat> they had words over this whole thing. And uh, I mean, you know, back then, part of the whole moral code thing was, is that since women didn't have any options, mm -hmm. an honorable man did the honorable thing since mm -hmm. she had no other options. And so, but if he didn't, you know, he did, they didn't charge him with anything. So it wasn't uh, binding. You know, this moral code that existed then and lots of men didn't live up to it. So, uh, and that's what happened to Fritzy, unfortunately. So she really was uh, innocent in this whole thing and a very tragic uh, person. Oh, see, I just found out. Now, Liz Taylor movie was called A Place in the Sun. Yes, yeah. Right. That's the one. Yeah. 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 You know what? Yeah, I'm and, you right. know. Reporters were speculating back then anyway, and I'm not, I mean, I'm a freelancer now, so I'm not like a real reporter anymore, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe with this dating with her too, I mean, to go around, I'm not taking anything away from wealthy people because there's a lot of fun, wealthy people out there. You know, there's sure. a lot of fun people and I've grown up around wealthy people, but back then, you know, some of the people, especially like you say, she was a widow. She probably could have been real snobbish, you know, real low keyed. And then here he's got this 23 year old girl who's energetic all over the boards and stuff, and she's exciting for him. And so that was the thing. It, you know, he, he was dating this other gal. He was starting to date this other gal, yet this other woman, woman was so exciting. But it was, it was gonna, he knew it was going to go nowhere anyway. Yeah, and, and I don't know. You know, it's hard to tell how far he actually got with this, this uh, widow who was like in her late 40s. Right. You know, much, much older than him. And uh but she also had a young daughter who was dating a Navy lieutenant at the time. And there was some speculation that he wanted to marry the younger one or the older one. Didn't matter to him. He wanted to marry one of them. Just to climb uh, that ladder. Yeah, right. It would have worked in either case. But right. if they found out that he had gotten what would have been, Fritzy would have been considered a low class. She came right. from a poor family. And... Uh, uh, they pejoratively called interpretive dancing at the time oriental dancing. And I apologize for using that outdated yeah. term, but that's what they referred to it as in the newspapers. And it was a pejorative thing in a lot of, in a lot of circles anyway, it was considered kind of sleazy because if you can see the picture of her on the front and then there's some other pictures in the book, um, they dress for the time provocatively, you know, and uh, their movements were sinuous and, uh, um, you know, the conservatives, the traditionalists and whatnot, uh, just really looked down on this profession. And uh, 
and you know so it was when they called it an oriole dancer a lot of the times that was that was meant to be uh, an insult well when you think about it that kind of dancing probably back then was akin to a strip club yeah to some extent you know and it probably had some you know developed into burlesque later on maybe mm -hmm. you know i i don't know if there's a direct line there but she wasn't, uh, there was nothing salacious about her performances. I mean, yeah, to the eye of, of a conservative, you know, social conservative back then, it would have been outrageous, you know, you know, writhing around on the, on the, but if you were to see it now, you would go, that's completely tame. You know, right. why are you even getting upset about this? You know, um, so and she was a serious artist. She she wanted to have a career, and she had tried to break into the movies too, and that's another part of this story, um, uh, as well. Um, well, like you say, the times were a lot different. Like some of those movies from the early '30s or in the '30s, like the Gold Digger movies. I remember my dad used to watch those because my because my dad, mm -hmm. you know, was, was born in uh, '26, so he used to watch, mm -hmm. you know, those those '30s. And I remember the one. Um, and uh, the one song in, in Ginger Rogers is supposed to say um, a shotgun to her, a shotgun to a stomach. And they thought that was too risque. So she changes it mid word to belly <laughs> because stomach yeah. was too risque. Yeah, it, there were some really strange things. And, it, you know, in the early 20s, too, there was a big dichotomy between, you know, a big culture war. Uh, mm -hmm. very similar to the one that's going on right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's actually kind of eerie. It's so similar. Uh, even some of the uh, rhetoric is the same or similar. And it's the same issues. It's immigration. It's abortion. It's, um, um, you know, race. It's gender. You know, it's all of those things that were at the forefront at the time. And that really helped shape this case and this story as well. I was, I didn't know that. I mean, I had read some on the twenties, but it, you know, it was mostly prohibition and mm -hmm. things like that, but I didn't realize there was such a thing there. And basically what happened was is world war one disillusioned millions of people. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the younger crowd kind of took that as a sign, Hey, you know, these old people are going to send us off to die in some foreign war. So we might as well party. Well, that happens at the same time that prohibition goes into effect. I mean, exactly the same time. So, you know, it was a real party atmosphere, dancing on tables, speakeasies and all that. I mean, people drank more than they had before. And partying was a big deal. Flappers were a real thing, you know. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and you know, obviously the traditionalists didn't like that. And so there was a huge backlash. And uh, old Hollywood was part of that backlash because they blamed a lot of this on the movies mm -hmm. and it's the stuff that young people were seeing in the movies, like the Valentino movies, the sheep, right. you right, know, right, things right. like that. So, right. uh, you know, they threatened to shut Hollywood down. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it, it was, it was really something. Um, and that was one of the eeriest thing that, and the thing about the whole American tragedy thing, um, uh, you know, are kind of what, really struck me is is the you know the the eerie things that came out of this not that there's anything uh, supernatural to it but but just it shows you how things you know come back full circle and the, the cultural stuff that's happening now is the same as then 
almost exactly the same. So, uh, you know, crazy. Everything, everything does replay like that. You know, history will will mm -hmm. will cycle, like you say. It's, it's cycling back to what it was. My right. father always said, you know, that we were due for a revolution here. You know, yeah. that, that that we're ripe for it. You know, that it's going to cycle again. If people aren't happy, they're broke, they're not happy, and all this. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting to watch the cycles. Yeah. See what's going on? Because you can compare it, like you say, you can compare now with, with back then. Mm -hmm. But what's funny with the flappers, like you say, the story is not funny. But the stories that that I remember, the stories that you remember, are the fun, are the fun and games. Sure, the sure. good times. You know, you don't think about the stuff that was underlying that was going on. Like for instance, with her, or with like you know this this American tragedy. Yeah, there's a real problem with having that. <laughs> The whole, the whole, uh, you know, uh, outlook that we're gonna, you know, party and, and obviously that the alcohol and the dancing leads to sex, young people, and you know, it happens, right? So, and there just wasn't really any way to prevent it, and and if you nothing effective anyway, and like I said, even birth control was illegal, and even what was around was very ineffective, and. Uh, and then, you know, abortion wasn't an option. Well, it happened, of course, and right. you can imagine how it happened. So, um, you know, scary stuff when I when I think about the, the things that are happening in the country now and the cultural front, it scares mm -hmm. the hell out of me. And uh, I can see it happen in, the, in this story. You know, it's, uh, I don't know. What did the reporters think? You know, when when they narrowed it down to the doctor, what, what, how did the papers react on it? Well, they really wanted it to be the actor because <laughs> they were using the Hollywood angle, right? There was a Hollywood angle to this story. In fact, there were multiple Hollywood angles, uh, some of which didn't really come out at the time, but mm -hmm. that I found in my research. But uh, they wanted it to be him because he made good copy. He was good looking. He was associated with Hollywood, even though. He was brand new in a fledgling film company that, that mostly did documentary kind of things. So it's not like he was a Hollywood player right. working for famous players or something. Uh, but they really played up the Hollywood angle. And uh, so they were very upset when he, <laughs> he was cleared by the chief, um, you know, just one day after he was arrested. And uh, it was clear it wasn't him. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, he actually, as it turns out, uh, he didn't even meet her until after she was already pregnant. She didn't know it probably, but. Uh, right. So, uh, yeah. And well, so, you know, that was the thing. They, I mean, they finally settled on him because that's what, you know, they were given all the, they were leaking all the things like the letters, for instance. And uh -huh. that caused a real stir because there was some, you know, I, he's doing something illegal. Right. And this is all in the newspapers. And that's why the public health service fired him before it even went to trial. So. Uh, and then when you think about the times, I mean, like, you know, I could see why the reporters were aiming for Hollywood. I mean, I can understand that because the scandals were yet to come from Hollywood. I mean, like the thing with Fatty Arbuckle and all right. those were yet to occur. Yet that's what they were after. No, these actually occurred after that. Oh, series. After? Okay. Yeah. It, there was five major Hollywood scandals, and that's also an angle okay, to okay. this book because they missed a scandal here, as it turns out, because she had an associated Asian with a famous player star, 
and dancer. Okay. A Russian actor named Theodore Kozlov, whose name is pretty much forgotten now, but back then he was pretty big. Okay. And uh, so anyway, yeah, there were five uh, uh, big scandals in the early okay. 1920s, one each year. And Arbuckle started in 21. In 22, it was William Desmond Taylor, which oh, yeah. is probably the, the greatest Hollywood mystery of all time. And then there was, uh, at the same time of this case, uh, one of the most famous actors in the world was named Wallace Reed at the time. And he died from drug complications of drug addiction. And that was big news then. You know, so uh, in fact, that her story was with his on the front pages for yeah. for some days. So, uh, so yeah, it was a uh, it it was it was closely related to that stuff, and this could have been turned into another big scandal, right? And you know, but the, the association never came out in the papers. And that could be because the studios hushed it up. Who knows? Uh, right. But. Uh, yeah, I didn't have my date straight. That's right. It was only yeah. Four. See, shows you shows you what my memory. You start getting old, and then the mind starts. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> I can't I've remember read, anything. I, I've read up on all those all those you know those Hollywood scandal things, and you know just it's one of those days. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. But um, your books your books so fascinating to me. Because I know what it takes to do research for that kind of thing, and you know it's hard, like you say. You know, one of your witnesses was in their 90s that, that, that you talked to because right. there's not anybody around that was there. So, I mean, it's just what, what you're reading is what was in the papers and whatever you get a hold of from the sheriff's office, if there's anything left of that. And there's not there, a lot gone, but, but, but you were able to put so, so something cohesive together. But that was the big challenge. Um, even after all of that research for years and I started writing, I had big problems putting together a coherent story. There were big gaps Sure. And so how do you fill those gaps uh, without cheating, <laughs> which is, you know, what, what some authors do. Uh, sure. they, they fill in some details with fiction. And since I wasn't going to do that, um, you know, it was it was tough. That was the hardest part of writing this thing. And even more than the research, why it took me like nine years to, to, to finish it. And uh, uh, so. Uh, yeah, I mean. Well, was it a thing where, you know, because it did take nine years. I mean, obviously you, you weren't focusing on it completely in nine years you probably, yeah. because, because of, you know, having those blank spaces in there, you had to step away to collect your thoughts. Oh, absolutely. There were, there were certainly a lot of times, but I also spent <laughs> more nights than I can carry to count, basically not sleeping because I was also going to school at the time. Sure. So I had all the other school work while I was doing this even though this was the thesis project. So that was my biggest focus, but, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, you got to get really creative with how you tell the story. I talk about this in the preface about, you know, the only options you really have are to cheat <laughs> or to, uh, you know, do lots of research, which I did. And then when there's still big holes, how do you feel that? Well, you have to get creative with the storytelling without getting creative with the facts. Right. And uh, the true stories don't cooperate with your storytelling imperatives, you know, where you have turning points at all the right places in the story. And so you have to get really creative with how you tell it. So uh, I, I hope it's fascinating and fascinated me. So what I hope some that of that. Comes what did your instructor think when when you turned it into him? What, what was his yeah. reaction? Or her. Uh, <laughs> she, 
Well, she worked with me uh, early on in the early parts of the book. Uh, you know, I was turning it in chapter at a time as mm -hmm. part of my assignments. And she helped me a lot. Um, and uh, I, um, but, you know, I, I only had a first draft. It was way too long. Um, you know, I did meet with some editors and agents and whatnot. And one of the editors was interested right off the bat, but uh, I wasn't ready for one thing. I had to trim it down. I cut 30,000 words out of it before I actually, uh, you know, wow. sent it in and thought, thought it was ready to publish. So. Right. I know even as a newspaper writer, try, trying to cut down a story, you know, when you're really into it and you really write it up and then yeah. they come back and say, oh, it's too long, cut it down. And you're, and you're thinking, oh my God, what am I going to cut down? And everything that needs to be in the story is here. Yeah. So how did you make those choices? <laughs> <laughs> With great difficulty. That's that there were decisions on every page in every scene in everything, what to include and what not to include and, and how to do it so that it would be, interesting to read you know and and to, you know this is narrative nonfiction, which right. as opposed to you know typical uh, journalism or or typical nonfiction, you're trying to tell a story in a novelistic fashion mm -hmm. um because you know that's more fun to read frankly. right so this goes back to truman capote and in cold blood uh which you know, is one of the first real narrative nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's the challenge to it. You know, if you just state the facts, then, you know, it's not really going to be very interesting. You have to arrange it in a way and cover things in a way. And that was part of the reason why I really went into some of these other issues like yellow journalism and uh, mm -hmm. Uh, the whole birth control abortion thing, the culture war stuffs, the Hollywood stuff. It was all related to the plot, but it also helps give you a, a, a richer story, I think. Well, because you know, of the context with yeah. people now, because they, they weren't there at that particular era. Right. So you have to paint a picture of what things were like. You know, right. what, it wasn't like, like you say, it wasn't like it is now. Right. I mean, there were laws that we wouldn't even touch now, but then there's laws that they're bringing back now that, you know, that, right. <laughs> that we're starting to touch again, yeah. but you know, you have to paint that picture because things, things definitely were not the same as they are now. Definitely true. Um, not the same, you know, the technology, I, I mean, everything was different. It's, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, but yeah, everything was different and, you know, you can look at it from the perspective on the surface, this is a murder mystery you know, with detectives trying to solve a, a you know, a bona fide murder mystery. Um, but then it's also uh, this family who came to America for a better life. And they actually had a series of tragedies. Uh, her father died from tuberculosis not long before this. Then she died. And then her sister died six months later from tuberculosis. So, her mother was in and brother was all that was left then. And so it was a big tragedy uh, for the family. And I uh, go into that to some degree and, um, you know, and it was just a tragic story of a young woman who was trying to have a career and, and, and get along and fell in love with the wrong guy. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the bottom line. 
to the story. That's what happened to her. I don't know if you can tell me this, but what, what type of personality uh, did she have? Yeah, that's uh, from everything you you know you can tell. It's you have to read between the lines a lot of the time. But clearly, she was an extrovert. She had a lot of friends. Uh, she liked performing and being on stage, and uh, she had started studying dance uh, as classical ballerina earlier you know when she was like 13 or something mm -hmm. and then uh she was uh she was not a shrinking violet let's put it that way she was uh, assertive to especially for a woman of her time and uh and that that may have very much gotten her in trouble in a lot of cases but uh you know uh she, I think overall, she was a positive, outgoing, ambitious person. She wanted to have a career. Mm -hmm. But then when she got pregnant, obviously that changes everything. And she decided, well, I don't have any other options, so I'll have to get married. And, you know, but it, that ended everything. So, absolutely. Boy, this hour flew by really fast. Yeah, they do. What, what, <laughs> what a fascinating book, though. And I, I admire you for the research you did because it's a lot of work, you know, to, to go through that, especially, you know, all the, all these years later, you know, trying to find information on even newspaper, you know, it's, it's hard with newspapers because like you said, some of those newspapers aren't there anymore. So you still right. have to find a way to find those things. Not, not everything's on, on microfiche, you know, like we're used to nowadays. Yeah. Fortunately, they're putting a lot of that stuff online now. And so they have databases that you can join and get a lot of stuff. But I still went through lots of microfish readers going blind, uh, trying to read those old newspapers uh, and, you know, archives for so uh, um, historical societies and sure. libraries, you know, mostly. So, uh, yeah. So I uh, admire you. I really do. What's well, next? I appreciate that. What's next? What's next? Yep. I'm actually uh, looking, I just recently started, uh, I'm planning on writing a screenplay from this story. Uh, it would be loosely based on this book. Um, mm -hmm. But since I did all that research, I have lots of other stuff that would be good in the movie that didn't necessarily happen. Sure. Uh, so it would be loosely based. I would never say it's based directly on the story. Right. And I'm also looking at some other old crimes to do a book on next. Uh, I've got it narrowed down to two or three that I might look at stuff that hasn't really been written about before, uh, more obscure stuff. So, so yeah, I'll kill myself with research again. <laughs> that's, that's what you do. You find these old obscure crimes a hundred years old and, right. but, uh, sounds uh, like a lifetime movie in the making. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to be, I'm sorry. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah All right. right. Thank you so much. Uh, how, how can people find you? Uh, you my website is uh, James Stewart Author, just like it, one word.com. Uh, and it's got links to a lot of things, including media that I've had and whatnot. Um, so that'd be the, the easiest place to go. It's got a link to all the places where you can buy it. And it's got other pictures and some blog stuff on there and a lot of other things, press kit and all that. And uh, I'm actually going to be, if you don't mind, I'm going to be at the uh, Bay Area Book Festival coming up in two weeks, uh, 7th and 8th, I think. Cool. Be there, uh, set up as a, as an exhibitor, not not as a featured author or anything, but 
anyway, I love those things. So uh, if you're there, stop by. It's a big deal. Absolutely. Here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. You're standing on the strip at Las Vegas. And there's several other writers who have similar books like yours out there as well. Mm -hmm. What do you say to get people to read your book? I would say that it's, it's a murder mystery. It's definitely a murder mystery. So if you like that kind of thing, it is that. Uh, but it's also, I like to think a little richer than a standard, uh, you know, murder mystery. Because I do, you know, under the narrative nonfiction, I'm not writing this as like a, a you know, like as I would a, a mystery fiction book. I'm writing it as narrative nonfiction. So I try to give the context in which this story took place. So if you're interested in history, especially the 1920s, it's full of that uh, prohibition, old Hollywood, uh, interpretive dancing, you know, any of those things, uh, yellow journalism, uh, you'll, I think you'll learn a lot about all of those things. So it's just more than just a murder mystery. That's, that's what I would say. Fantastic. Thank you so much, sir. And I would like to get you, I would love to have you on at a later date to talk more about stuff. Sure. I would love it. And thank you very much for having me. And thank you so much for coming on. Have a good yeah. rest of your evening. You too. Bye, right, Charlotte. Bye -bye. Okay. That was cool. That was really cool. And it, it reminded me, like, yeah, like I said, of a place in the sun. It really did remind me of that. And, you know, I've like our investigations at the Moss Beach Distillery. I mean, that was about the same time frame of prohibition and everything. And, and that, that was a mysterious death, too, you know, up there. So, wow, that's all I can say. Thank you so much, sir, for coming on. Thank you. Uh, well, what can I say? If you like the show, oh, I'm way ahead of myself. Look at that. Tomorrow, hold on to your hats. Reverend Bill Bean is going to be with us. He is the man of, of hundreds of exorcisms that, that, that he's done. And he's going to be with us to talk about that stuff and how he, and how he goes about it, you know, and how he, you know, gets his clients and all that stuff. So he's going to be with us tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Now I can get ahead of myself. All right. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five Share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And please, if you're watching on YouTube, please, please, please subscribe. The more subscribers, the merrier, as they say. Again, I'm going to be doing some different stuff here coming up. Um, I've got my big studio set up, so we're going to be doing some I'm not, test on camera. I've used it before, but not for anything for the team yet in there. So we're going to be doing some camera tests this week and in the next weekend. And then I'm going to be doing some some how-to videos. Like, you know, if there's certain paranormal equipment that you have that you don't know how to use properly or, or anything like that, we're going to look at that and look at that equipment and do, and do some how-to videos. So that's that's what we're going to be doing over there, okay? And I might even be doing some, you know, some crafts over there, too, because I'm, I'm very crafty. So I might teach you how to make a wreath or something with dollar store supplies or something along that line. We'll see how it goes. But I want to thank everybody for coming. Katie, uh, Jen, Marisa. I think, let me, let me show you. I get everybody here. Hang on. Yeah, we've got uh, Jen, Marisa, Katie. Uh, thank you for coming. And everybody that didn't come into the chat room, which is fine. You know, if you're, if you're just lurking out there listening, I appreciate you doing that. That's great. You know, um, I, I love this show and I hope you love the show too, because it's definitely a good show. You know, I'm not just saying that it's just, it is a good show when you start looking, when you look at everything that we do, you know, the different stuff In fact, next week, I'll give you guys a hint next week. 
if you're into edible bugs, <laughs> we're going to have the edible bug guy on to tell us about what bugs we could survive on and what bugs you didn't eat at home even. So we're going to have him on next week. So that's going to be interesting. But in the meantime, tomorrow again is Reverend Bill Bean is going to be with us. So that ought to be a very interesting show. I know we've had Exorcist on before. Uh, Bishop James Long's been on here. Uh, Pharaoh Rose has been on here. And then now we've got a different type of uh, Exorcist coming in in Reverend Bill Bean. So it should be fun tomorrow for the show. Uh, you see that ticker floating around the bottom? That's because the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team operates as a nonprofit. We don't have status. We operate as a nonprofit because it's a hobby. You know, and we like to go out and help people to you know, with their paranormal stuff. And so everything comes out of my pocket. So all the equipment, uh, the mics, this, you know, the computer, all, all that stuff, the internet comes out of my pocket. And I could always use some help during the month making the bills. I love doing this show. I'm a retired journalist. This is what I do. And uh, I enjoy this immensely. I enjoy spending time with you guys and my guests. So if you could find it in your heart to donate a little bit, that would be great. That's at paypal.me at California Haunts. Or if you don't like PayPal and you're more comfortable with Venmo, just go to Venmo and type in California Haunts. It's that easy. But I'd really appreciate it, you know, because uh, the first of the month's coming up. Bills are coming up. Got to get these bad boys paid so I can stay on the air. All right? Because I want to keep bringing this show to you guys. I really do. But anyway, thank you. And I'm going to show you his information. I did not put his website up. However, I'll show you where, where the easiest way to get his book. And I encourage you to read it because from what I've read already uh, on my Kindle, it's a really, really good book. Okay, so here we go. That is Mystery at the Blue Sea Cottage, a true story of murder in San Diego's jazz age. And you can get that at Amazon. That's about the easiest place that I found it. So again, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. when I talk to Reverend Bill Bean. Have a good evening, everybody.